This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the skies as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we not only welcome your Holy Spirit, but we cry out to you for his presence and his power among us. We bring before you our dead, sleepy selves, and we ask that you would send your fire from heaven that we would be an offering that brings pleasure and delight to your heart, O Lord. Open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might behold Jesus, risen, ascended, exalted, sitting at the Father's right hand. And as we gaze on him, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, increase our hope, and deepen our love. For his name's sake, amen. Well, I hope it goes without saying that Christianity is all about Christ. I hope that goes without saying, but it never hurts to repeat that over and over and over again, because the only reason we gather together is to worship Jesus and respond to him in faith and in obedience. And every week we come here to fix our eyes together afresh on Jesus and gaze on him. But I think there might be a danger that we could become either so focused on what Jesus has done for us in the past, in his incarnation and his cross and his resurrection, or so focused on Jesus coming again in glory as he returns to this earth to take up his kingdom and reign and bring about God's new creation, that we might overlook 
who Jesus is for us right now, what Jesus is doing for his church at this very moment. And I think a lot of Christians act as though Jesus might even be cryogenically frozen somewhere. He went into heaven, he's been put into cold storage, he's off the stage, and then at a time of God's choosing, he will be thought out and sent down here below to reappear among us. Would it make much difference if he was? Well, as we turn to the book of Acts, a portion of which Timothy read for us today, we're looking at Luke's very brisk, fast-paced account of the miraculous expansion of the church of God. And this book is filled with Luke's joyful, exuberant confidence that all of this is happening because Jesus is alive and well. He is reigning at God's right hand, and he's powerfully at work in this world. Jesus is very much on the stage of history. And it's a little bit unfortunate that in our Bibles, this book is known as the Acts of the Apostles because a more accurate, perhaps a more long-winded title would be something like the Acts of the Ascended Christ by his Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Because you notice that Luke introduces his second volume to his patron Theophilus, describing volume one, the Gospel of Luke, as what Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach. Jesus is very present throughout this book. I notice as you read through the, the book of Acts and you pay attention to the sermons that Luke records and the conversation that he describes, that for Luke, salvation does not come from any past event, not even the cross, but salvation comes from the hand of the living powerful, and very present Jesus. That's the only reason anyone ever gets saved. The only reason anyone is filled with the Spirit. The only reason the church is expanding so miraculously. And in Luke, in his two-volume work, Luke and Acts, the pivotal event for Luke is not the cross or even the resurrection. Luke is all about the ascension, which he describes twice in the last chapter of Luke and here in Acts chapter 1. And for Luke, it's the ascension of Jesus from Mount, the Mount of Olives into heaven that is the hinge of all of human history. Some of you might know that this Thursday is Ascension Day. If any of you come from the few traditions that celebrate that, it's a bit unfortunate that it's overlooked in many Christian traditions and treated as kind of a minor feast at best. It's a real shame because I think we are depriving ourselves of tremendous consolation as we reflect on Jesus rising from this earth in glory to take his seat at the right hand of God where he ministers to us in power even now. And the reason we celebrate Ascension Day this Thursday in the Western calendar is that it happens 40 days after Easter, reflecting the fact that, as Luke describes, Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection, appearing again and again to his followers. And you can imagine what an exhilarating five or six weeks that would have been for Jesus' followers. After the crushing despair and defeat, seemingly, of Good Friday, to have Jesus not only to rise from the dead, but again and again to come and visit them and spend time with them. In this risen, glorified, and immortal body, here is someone who has passed through death, who's conquered death, who's reversed death. Death no longer has any claim on him. And he's in their midst, 
radiant and translucent with the very life of God. It's the future new creation somehow breaking into the death and decay of this world. What an awesome privilege for Jesus' followers to spend time with their Lord in this way. And over these 40 days, Luke tells us, Jesus gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. It was very clear that this was not a ghost or an apparition or hallucination or a dream. This is the physically resurrected, real-life Jesus. They could reach out and touch the wounds in his hands and his feet. He sat down with them around the fire on the beach and shared some broiled fish with them. And they were sitting there listening to Jesus sitting right in front of them, speaking about the kingdom of God. You can imagine they were paying very close attention. As Jesus described the new world that the reign and dominion of God was going to bring about. How his father was planning to renew all things and to reverse the curse and to heal the brokenness of this cursed creation. And I'm sure Jesus' disciples wished this could go on forever. How could it possibly get any better than this? And they don't yet realize that Jesus is not giving them these proofs or these teachings for their private edification and comfort and consolation. This is actually a time of intense training so that they can go and act as witnesses to others. But they don't realize that quite yet. During one meal, as Jesus is eating with them, he gives them a command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. This gift, of course, is the Holy Spirit, long promised to the people of God, all the way back in the days of the Old Testament through the prophets. John the Baptist had only baptized with water, The last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets could only give an outward symbol. But Jesus is coming to plunge and submerge and immerse people in the very Spirit of God. To fill them with God's own immortal, glorious life. To offer them unlimited joy and holiness and power. And Jesus' strict command is that they are not allowed to leave Jerusalem until this happens. Jesus' first command in the book of Acts is to forbid mission. Don't you dare start on this mission yet. You need to stay in Jerusalem. Don't foolishly try something premature. Because what Jesus is calling these Galileans to is something far beyond human capacity just as what he calls the apostolic church of God today to, is far beyond human capacity. They must go to Jerusalem and sit still and wait. The hardest thing for the church to do. Nothing. Because despite all the teaching they have heard, all the knowledge they've absorbed, That is not enough for them to go on mission. The church needs more than knowledge. She needs divine power and divine authority. Otherwise, the mission will fail. Because the world needs more than information. It needs transformation. It needs the Spirit of God raising dry bones from the dead, removing people's hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh 
And we cannot do that, brothers and sisters, in our own power. The church can do many impressive things with her money and her charismatically gifted people. She cannot raise the dead. And this is what God commands us to do. And so the church must wait. I've been trying to save some money on taxis this week. So I've been taking the marshrutka from the Dudube bus station back to Nsketa. And I go and I spend my two lari at the little ticket counter. And the lady gives me a ticket. And then I climb aboard the marshrutka. And I sit there and wait. Because the bus doesn't leave until it is full. So if you're a wise person, you bring a book with you. And you prepare just to sit there and do nothing. And sit in the sweltering van until the last person has boarded. And you're clear to go. And the church may not depart until the Holy Spirit arrives. William Willimon writes, Waiting, an onerous burden for us computerized and technically impatient moderns who live in an age of instant everything is one of the tough tasks of the church. If the disciples had a hard time waiting, how much more do we? He goes on to say that our waiting implies that the things which need doing in the world are beyond our ability to accomplish solely by our own efforts, our programs, and crusades. Some other empowerment is needed, which is why the church waits and prays for the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if this church feels that same urgent dependence on the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps, do we feel like we're competent to handle the mission on our own? That we have the budget, and we have the people, and we have the programs to tackle what God is calling us to do. That would be infinitely foolish. And this church will do absolutely nothing without God pouring his spirit upon us till his fire descends on this sodden offering, and God empowers us to do what he wants us to do in the world. And what we need most of all as the church is to wait and to pray with fervency and desperation until God pours out his promised spirit upon us. Jesus, of course, is talking about Pentecost, the feast when the tongues of fire that will create the church and ignite her mission descend from heaven and I'm eagerly looking forward to celebrating that in a couple of weeks. But clearly the disciples don't really understand what Jesus is talking about. The resurrection has greatly increased their faith and their confidence, but their knowledge still sees a lot to be desired. And they've forgotten that Jesus had told them, even before his crucifixion, that it was necessary for him to go away so that he could send another comforter to strengthen and equip the church. And the disciples don't understand that there can be no Pentecost without the ascension. There can be no pouring out of the Spirit without Jesus being exalted to the very highest place at the right hand of God. And so these half-seeing, half-confused disciples gather around Jesus, and they ask him a question that's been weighing heavily on their hearts. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
They're patriots, every single one of them. Members of a tiny nation that has had its glory days and has been groaning under foreign occupation. And they think, surely now, now that Jesus has been gloriously and incredibly confirmed as God's Messiah, as the promised King of Israel, now that he has defeated death itself and is living in the power of God's immortal life, wow, imagine this Jesus at the head of Israel's armies. Rome will not be able to stand against such a force. So Lord, will you at this time, please, we've waited for so long, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's actually a legitimate question, even if it's tinged by some nationalistic fantasies. Because Israel was God's covenant people, and God had bound himself to Israel by an oath to their father Abraham that they would be his people. And that is a promise that God is not about to break. But he may not keep it quite in the way that God's people imagine. There is a powerful restoration of Israel that Jesus is about to launch. In a far greater way than these disciples could possibly imagine. Because Israel is going to greatly expand as Jesus begins to graft in the nations. And the new people of God are going to be a Jewish Gentile people of God, with the 12 apostles heading up the 12 new tribes of Israel. And it's this Jewish Gentile Israel of God that is going to inherit the land, not just the little sliver of the promised land on the east coast of the Mediterranean. The whole earth is going to belong to them under the reign of the son of David. The disciples' perspective is far too blinkered and small. And they can only imagine Jesus as being good news to their own tribe, where Jesus has come to be a light to the nations. And if they'd remembered God's promise to Abraham, it was that Israel was going to be blessed in order to be a blessing to the whole world. And now, through Christ, all nations are going to stream to Mount Zion. So Jesus does not deny the validity of their question, but he doesn't answer it directly either. He tells them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Not for you. And if you see a package as you go under the Christmas tree looking for your own presents and it's labeled, not for you, that means hands off. Do not open this. This is forbidden knowledge. You are not meant to know this. Not, of course, that Jesus' command has ever stopped the curious. Those who seem unable to help themselves by prying into the secret things of God. Because there's something irresistible, isn't there, about producing charts and tables and calendars and timelines. It's all so exciting digging into the book of Revelation, looking for all those symbols and trying to find the key in clear disobedience to the commands of Jesus. It is not for you. Did you know that when the Bible was first translated into Georgian in the 300s, the monks translated every single book of the Bible into Georgian except for one, the book of Revelation. They waited 700 years to translate that book into Georgian. Perhaps it would have been wiser for them instead to have translated it along with some sound interpretation. 
But still, there are some of us who perhaps would be better off with that book untranslated. Because that book has often been misread as a revelation of the secret things of God when it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And however all those things work out, what we need to know is that Jesus is reigning supremely. And that despite all of our troubles and fears and anxieties, despite the nations rebelling against God and the serpent seeking to poison God's people, that Jesus is king. Readiness for the master's return does not mean predicting his timing, but obeying his commands. And when Jesus comes back to this earth, his question for us will not be, who managed to work out the date? His question will be, what have you done with the talent I gave you? Trying to figure out the time and the date appeals to people, I think, because it gives them a sense of control in a world that seems out of control. What we really need to do is simply allow God to be in control. So long as God knows the date, and so long as God knows the time, it's all going to happen according to schedule. And my knowledge or lack of knowledge will not advance that moment one second. Trust and obey. It's very simple. God's plan is going according to schedule. He has had no need to delay or postpone the date. His kingdom will come when God decides. That is not for you, Jesus says, to know the date or the time. But here is what is for you. Here is the real gift that has your name written on it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know what? The church's greatest need is not secret knowledge, but divine power and divine presence. What we need for our mission is not God's timetable. What we need is to be energized and authorized by the Spirit of God to do what God is calling us to do. And Jesus is going to pour out his Spirit for this reason so that we will be witnesses. He's not giving this power so we feel great about ourselves, so that we have a shiny new toy to play with, or a way to exalt ourselves over other people. The whole point of Pentecost is for the church's mission and the church's witness. Our primary calling as the church of God is to be witnesses, to tell a story, to announce a fact. Even better, to declare a person. Because you will be my witnesses, Jesus says. And the supreme task of the church, including this church, is to point beyond ourselves to him and to him alone. Without Jesus, this church has no message. And frankly, without Jesus, this church has no reason for its existence. We are here to declare the praises of Jesus the Christ. And like John the Baptist, each of us must say, I am not the Christ. In case you guys didn't know, I am not the Christ. I doubt anyone would be confused by that, but just so you're clear, I am not the Christ. I cannot help you with any of your problems whatsoever. But I know who can, and my job is to point you away from yourself and away from myself up towards Jesus.
And if I can walk off this stage every Sunday feeling I spoke about Christ, then I feel like I've done what God has called me to do. Like John the Baptist to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We are so small, we are so weak, and we are so sinful. And if you're new here, I want to just let you know this church will disappoint you. And it will fall short of your dreams of Christian community. It will. But we're not telling you to trust in us or rely on this community. Although we're doing the best we can, I hope, by God's grace. We are saying, let us introduce you to Jesus. Let us remind you to turn your eyes back onto him. The church has always been most powerful when she knows nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the only message we have. And our calling as a church and as individual Christians is primarily to bear witness to Christ in word and in deed to say and to demonstrate that Jesus is the king and that through him, God's kingdom has come into this world. And I think there's a real danger with this church in our particular situation that we neglect and forget that this is our primary calling. You know, we're all far from our home countries, the vast majority of us. We're lonely, we're longing for friends, we're longing for community. We need care, and we're trying to provide that as a church. But there's a danger that this could become a comfortable little oasis where we come here primarily with our own needs, our real needs, that need to be met, and we forget that God sends us out into this world and into this city to preach Jesus. And just because you're overseas, and just because we're an international church, that does not somehow give us a pass on what God is calling us to do. And we're all inherently selfish, aren't we? We arrive here obsessed with our own problems, our own issues, even our own sins, and we can spend our whole lives seeking healing for ourselves, which is all good and useful, by the way, but never be done with that and never actually get out of our hospital bed and begin to serve Jesus. I'm going to pour my spirit upon you, Jesus tells the disciples, and you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As Jesus goes upward, his church is sent outward because everyone's leaving Jerusalem. The call to witness is a call to live for others, for Christ primarily, but also for those who have not heard, for whom Jesus also came. And if our hearts are really burning with love for Christ, we will want him to be glorified. And if our desire is for the one who died for us and rose for us, for him to receive the praises of all peoples, for him to hear every tribe and tongue and nation and language shouting, worthy is the lamb who was slain, then it's up to us by the grace of God to go and tell them, to go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. Because people were willing to do that for us. I mean, I don't think any of us are from Jerusalem. The far ends of the earth, that's us. And there were faithful disciples and apostles and their followers after them who were willing to cross frontiers, physical borders, and barriers of language and culture 
and to go to strange, pagan, idol-worshipping people lost in darkness, to leave the comfortable situation of Jerusalem, how nice and cozy would it be to live in Jerusalem where the temple of God is? But they're called to go beyond the walls and to go to all nations. And if we are to be an apostolic church, that is what God also calls us to do. Jesus gives them this promise of the Holy Spirit. He gives them this commission, this promise that they're going to go to the ends of the earth. And then to their astonishment, as they're gathered in little group on the top of the Mount of Olives, Jesus' feet begin to leave the ground. And he begins levitating in front of them toward the sky. Up until a cloud hides him from their sight. Jesus is going to a place beyond space and time. Outside of this physical creation, Jesus is ascending to the right hand of the Father. Not to be absent, but to be present in a different way. Because God is omnipresent. And as we learned in Ezekiel chapter 1 a few weeks ago, the throne of God is mobile. It has wheels. And if Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, He is present everywhere because by his divine glory, he fills all of his creation. And he is powerfully present with his people only in a different mode. And this all happens so quickly. One moment, Jesus is there talking to them. And then a few seconds later, he's vanished into the clouds. And the disciples are standing there in a circle and they're gazing up into the sky. And then... Two men appear among them, wearing white, and tap them on the shoulder and ask them, Men of Galilee, why are you staring up into the sky? Because the disciples are gaping at an empty horizon. Why are you looking up into the sky? Now that Jesus has ascended, what possible purpose is there for you to be standing here staring at the clouds? And I read this as a gentle rebuke of a kind of idle curiosity. It's not evil that they're gazing after Jesus. It's very natural and understandable. But there is a time to bring our gaze back to this earth and to be doing what Jesus has called us to do. Much as the disciples may have wanted to, they're not meant to linger on the mountaintop, to kind of bask in the afterglow of this incredible experience they've had, to kind of soak in the glory of it all and just take it in and enjoy it for themselves. They are quickly sent back down the mountain to make the long hike to the city below. Just like God calls all of us to descend the mountain to obey and to serve. It's good that we meet here every week, but we would be disobedient disciples if we made life one long church service. Even if a few of you, perhaps not many, would enjoy that. We're here to be refreshed, to go into God's world, and to serve his purposes. And we must resist selfish spiritual gratification, seeking experiences for our own intellectual or emotional satisfaction in a way that prevents us or hinders us from loving other people in practical ways. There is a mission, and the mission is for the sake of others. And Jesus cares a lot more about our obedience than he does about satisfying our curiosity. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed 
the things commanded in Deuteronomy, those things are for us and our children forever. I feel like I can give you permission to pry into the secret things once you've checked off everything that God is asking of you in your life. If anyone can stand up here and say, I have obeyed everything that God has required, I have fulfilled his will for my life, and now I strangely find myself with some, some free time, go ahead and pry into these things. But until then, Jesus is asking you to obey him and follow him in this world. And we descend because he has ascended. Jesus has not left the stage. He hasn't abandoned this world. He's not been put into cold storage. Jesus is still part of the battle. He's directing it from a higher place, from the very throne of God. Here's what empowers our mission as a church. The knowledge that Jesus is exalted. Jesus has gone to the Father as our great high priest. He's gone into the Holy of Holies to present his finished sacrifice, to show God his wounds that he suffered on our behalf. And he is continually interceding for his people, powerfully at the right hand of God, as he continues to fulfill his priestly ministry. And Jesus has ascended as the great prophet of the people of God. And he is actively building his church, as we will see in the book of Acts, were we to read further. And even at this moment, Jesus is speaking to us, and he is addressing us as the living word of God. And Jesus has ascended as our great king. He is wielding his rod of iron over the nations, and he is causing all things to submit to him and to bow before the will of his Father. Jesus is risen. Jesus is exalted. And this same Jesus will return at the day and at the hour that the Father has planned. Meanwhile, let us be found faithful. Servants, we're not shocked or horrified or afraid when Jesus returns. But you can say, Master, here is what we have done for your service. Shall we bow our heads and pray that God would give us the grace to be able to say those words before him? Heavenly Father, we come before you through the active living ministry of your Son, the very Word of God, our own humanity exalted to the very highest place. We ask that you would fill our hearts with glorious assurance of your power, of your presence, of your authority. Jesus, we ask that you would pour your spirit out afresh on us. Help us to be obedient to your mission. Fill our hearts with a burning desire to see your name glorified, to see you receive the reward of your sufferings, to accept the worship that you alone are due. And, O Lord, may we be found faithful in our time and in our generation. And may we, in our own small but real ways, serve your kingdom and bear witness to your grace and to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.